0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 300 of them now and um, if if this is new to you, please go to batgap.com where you'll see them all organized and categorized in different ways and then you'll see a lot of other things which I'll itemize at the end of the interview. If you'd like to support our efforts, this show is made possible by such support, there's a donate button there. My guest today is Shelly Ray. Shelly Ray has led quite an intense life, which has taken a very nice turn for the better in recent decades, and she'll be going into some details on that. But just to read a little bio over here, she's been a Reiki master for 15 years, trained to the master level in many other energy modalities, and is certified in numerous body-centered therapies. Her work in this field became full-time in 2000, so 15 years. She was sexually abused as a child, and that was followed by 27 years of drug, alcohol abuse and bouts of depression, which brought her to death's door in 1997. With the help of 12-step recovery and many spiritual paths, in, the, in August of 2008, Shelley Ray awakened. I've read two of her books. Her first one, "Suffering: A Path to a Path of Awakening," dissolving the pain of incest, abuse, addiction, and depression. She wrote after the book went worldwide and opened a portal to support and guide many people in their awakening process. Her second book, Enlightenment, Tips to Reveal Your Divine Nature, has become a valuable tool to many who are seeking embodied awakening. While supporting others, Shelley Ray's raucous path to awakening allows a non-judgmental gentle pointing to the truth of who they are from the depths of her own realization. She balances deep compassion with a steady and potent awareness that you are not, in your essential self, the sufferer. Just before the interview, Shelley and I were talking about how it almost seems like, you know, if spiritual teachers hadn't gone through certain things themselves, then they wouldn't really be very effective in helping pe- people who had gone through similar things. They wouldn't be able to relate. So, you know, maybe there's some kind of difficult preparatory phase that some people have to go through in to prepare for their particular role as a spiritual teacher. And Shelley kind of concurred with that. Um, so, the bio I just read, Shelley, obviously, is going to pique people's curiosity. And so, let's get into some of the details for them, whatever you feel is germane and, and might be useful for people to hear. Especially considering that, you know, a lot of people do go through some of the tribulations that you went through, depression if nothing else, as well as substance abuse, and it might give some people a lot of hope that you have kind of come through to the other side as nicely as you have.
1: Okay, Um, well I'll start with, I was nine years old when the sexual abuse started, the physical abuse began, you know, as far back as I can remember and immediately began self-medicating when I was nine years old. Somehow I discovered huffing gas Mm. and um, moved quickly. You mean gasoline? Gasoline. Um. mm -hmm. You know I don't recall how I discovered this but I tied a rag around the end of my baton and would dunk it in the gas but the lawnmower Mm -hmm. and I would just breathe it in and get high and it would take away the anxiety and the Just the overwhelmingness of life. At nine years old, I just felt like everything was just too much. It didn't take very long before I found alcohol and drugs. By the time I was ten, I was drinking. By the time I was twelve, I was smoking pot and doing various other things—opium and LSD and speed and whatever I could really get my hands on. At the age of twelve. At the age of twelve. Wow. And you know, it just it accelerated. And when I was twenty, my I'd moved out at that point. I'd been out for years. Um, when I was 20 years old, my father committed suicide. There was something that happened at that point where this internal rage and sadness around never being able to have a relationship with my father, that was like the cutoff point for any hope of anything ever being good with my father. And that was when my drug and alcohol abuse accelerated. Hmm. So I was 20 years old and I was at that point doing cocaine regularly, drinking on a daily basis. By the time I was 37, you know, I'd gone through crack cocaine abuse, a couple years of that, in and out of a couple of detoxes. And um, at 37 years old, I woke up in the hospital, had been there for four days in progressive care and had no idea why I was there or how I'd gotten there.
0: Tell the story of how you got there.
1: had a suicide attempt and an alcohol blackout.
0: What was kind of amazing was that you, you, know, you were drunk and then you took a whole lot of pills and then you went out in the woods in the, at two in the morning and lay on some abandoned railroad tracks, not to get run over by a train because there wasn't going to be one, but just to die out there and somebody mm-hmm. actually found you at that hour of the night yeah. in, an, yes. in an abandoned place in the woods.
1: Right. And the most interesting part about that story is I know people at Lions Ambulance Service and I called. Of course they, they keep track of all of these calls that come in and who finds who and how the paramedics got there and no one had a trace of, of a trail to follow. So what do you um, mean? So the the woman that I spoke to, my friend, she didn't she said, We don't know who called. We don't oh, know how, somebody how
0: called, the, but you don't know how the know.
1: paramedics yeah. got there and, and so it was like you know, it was like grace. It wasn't my time yeah. to go. I'm sure that in my state I probably thought the train track was a good place to end it, not realizing, of course, in that condition that the train hadn't traveled on those tracks in years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It starved to death before a train came. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) One impression I got about you while reading your books is that you must be a, a very intelligent person because, I mean, you graduated high school in three years or something, even while going through all this stuff took me five years actually (laughs) uh, because of dropping out and this and that and even later i mean you got into corporate life and and did various things somewhat successfully while still being a raging alcoholic and drug user so you just must have had a lot of smarts to compensate for the handicaps that you were imposing on yourself
1: yeah i guess mostly school was just extremely torturously boring it wasn't stimulating to me at all, and it didn't take much for somehow I could. I had this, I'm very visual, and yeah. I had a way of seeing the work and yeah. feeling the answer come through me. And I could miss four days of school and come in for the final exam and just ace it. Without
0: yeah, a again, it's a symptom of a pretty smart person. <laughs> <Good to hear. laughs> and a lot of times, smart kids are really bored with school. In fact, I used to have a girlfriend who was a gram- um, I guess it was grammar school teacher, and she had, there was this real troublemaker of a kid, nobody could deal with him, and somehow or other she had the insight that school was too simple for him, and that's why he was making so much trouble. So they made him skip a grade or two, and then he started doing really well and, and settled down.
1: Great, yeah.
0: I don't know how much you want to belabor all the gory details of, of everything you went through. I think we've given people an idea, and you can obviously go into more, more if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, it was pretty extreme. But if um, one one preconception of mine or assumption that, you know, reading your book helped to shatter is that, you know, I've always kind of thought in the yogic tradition that the body is an an instrument through which divine consciousness or enlightenment or whatever is lived, and that living it is a matter of purifying and fine-tuning the instrument and that if you inflict a lot of damage on it, it might take you a long time to repair that damage and uh, to you know have any semblance of of awakening. And you, you're kind of an uh, exception to that assumption, although you did a lot of spiritual stuff. I mean, once you sobered mm-hmm. up, right, you really went at it.
1: Mm-hmm. I did, full steam ahead. I began looking, really seeking in an 86, and that was well before I got sober, and it was actually before I um, had my two-and-a-half-year stint with crack, um, where I spent a lot of time in a crack house. And mm-hmm. You know, as a part-time mom, my husband and I were separated. Well, that was in the early 90s. 1990, we separated. but um, So at that point, I was a part-time mom. And when the kids were with their dad for a week, I was in the crack house. And I'd pull myself together and and get home and take care of the kids on transition day when they were coming home. And
0: And just so people know, a crack house is where you go to take crack, not to recover from it. Right. It's not like yeah, a, a rehab thing.
1: Right. I went to a couple of those, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, looking back on it, it's so odd that that was my life. And it was. So, 86, I began seeking, and um, when I wound up in the hospital, I still wasn't ready to get sober. I still didn't think that I could live a life without drinking alcohol. And at that point, I had three years clean and sober from drugs. But um, the alcohol is what ultimately took me out.
0: So if you were seeking, and fairly intensively as I gather, you're into Yogananda's teachings and a bunch of other things, if you were doing those things and yet at the same time drinking and taking drugs, was there some kind of a war going on in your head? like? guilt tripping yourself why am i being such a jerk still taking these things and i i, I must i want spiritual enlightenment and yet i'm here i am drinking again were, were you kind of was there a good angel bad angel kind of thing going on or or inner conflict or did you somehow just blot out the discrepancy and and just carry on
1: mm-hmm. Well, most mostly before i got sober mm-hmm. i just had a lot of anger toward god mm-hmm. god spirituality life and and i was i was it was trying to pull something out of it that would give me just a little bit of hope and, and guide me in another direction. I knew that I didn't like the life that I was living. I didn't like myself. I didn't like many people around me. It was difficult being a mother. I loved my kids, but I hated myself because I couldn't be what I had in my mind, a good mother. So, yeah, there was a battle in there, but mostly it was just um, anger at life itself and not having any, real, any kind of resolution around uh, clarity or, or something new coming in. But when I got sober, I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had tippy-toed in and out a couple of times uh, because of the detoxes that i had been in. And at that point, uh, I got a sponsor, and she became my greatest ass-kicker and support and friend, and she pretty much saved my life i remember early on she said i don't know what you have for an idea of god but you need to find something that's going to work for you here's what worked for me and she slapped neil donald walsh's conversations with god book in my hand and said read this and i felt like a fraud i remember getting into my room and closing the door and hoping no one could see me or hear me and saying my first prayer kind of talking out loud to life itself At that point, it was a little hesitant to address God.
0: (laughs) So you felt like a fraud just for doing that because of your long-standing hatred toward God and everything, and here you were starting to pray to it, Him, her, her. Right, right, and
1: not really believing
0: in it. Yeah,
1: not knowing what I was talking to or if it was real. It felt, it just felt fake. And early on, very early on in sobriety, I had a couple of really magnificent uh, expanded consciousness, expanded states of consciousness uh, experiences, and it changed my world. It mm-hmm. changed the way I communicated with life, with God. I'll share the first one with you, I, you know, I was desperately seeking, my heart was just aching for connection, communication, something, some sort of a sign, and I had my face buried in my hands and the comforter. And was weeping as I was praying to this God that I didn't really believe in. And what happened was a window opened. It was like a portal. And all of a sudden, the comforter was life itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had this knowingness come through me, which had me in a total state of bliss of what it is that we're all doing here. Mm -hmm. And what life actually is. And this human uh, condition that we're in. And. And it was magnificent and it was exquisite, and I was just overwhelmed with joy. And I couldn't wait to write it all down and share it with the world. And then, pop, I came out of that state and couldn't remember the details of any of it. (laughs) But it was, you know, it was a great sign early on that helped to fuel my path into
0: seeking. Have you found in your own experience, both personally and as a spiritual guide to people, that? very often when you when you do seek with a sincere heart in and in whatever way verbally non-verbally when, when there's that sincere intention it gets res, it gets a response fairly fairly quickly
1: yes yes
0: yeah. yeah i've
1: experienced it and people that i work with have experienced it just in you know a, a simple little pointing and pausing someone that i'm working with mm-hmm. can drop them right into that state and like <gasps> I see it. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Nothing, nothing moves me more than that.
0: Yeah. Once the intention is there. Yeah. This is might seem like a minor point to bring up. I mean, so minor, and you're mentioning it. That why am I bringing it up? But you mentioned that once or twice an angel has come to you. Do you have the sense that this was your guardian angel, or that somehow you had been looked over your entire life, cared in a parental way by, by some higher being, higher intelligence or something, and that you were just having a glimpse of that.
1: Yes, his name is Al, I call him Angel Al. <laughs> yeah,
0: Paul Simon wrote a song about him. Yeah.
1: I know, and there's a funny story about that that I'll share <laughs> after I talk a little bit about Al. Uh-huh. So Angel Al, what happened was I was wanting guidance, and again that that deep, deep seeking and sincere longing to connect with the forces that are supporting me and and kind of showing me the way in this blinded state that i felt like i was in here in life not knowing where to go or how to get there so i was sitting in my bed and i was in deep deep meditation and all the windows and doors were closed this is back in massachusetts before i moved to oregon and, and all of a sudden i felt this cool breeze coming at me from the right side and I opened my eyes and looked over there. And standing there at the doorway, kind of leaning on the door jam, was this seven-foot light figure. Wow. And it startled me. And as soon as I went, <gasps> he disappeared. Mm. And I went, wait, no, wait, I'm not scared. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't sense any malintent. Uh, I really, I just was startled yeah, sure. to find someone in my room. And, and it took a little bit of time before I could open communication with Al. And it was funny, after I got his name through a number of different ways, uh, one morning I came out to the kitchen and I heard you know, this guy that threw through me and said, turn the radio on now. And I went, okay. And I turned it on and it was the Paul Simon song that came on and I had just been communicating with Al. That's
0: and, funny. Uh, and it that's just made me laugh right out loud. Yeah, Yeah, that's very funny. <laughs> For those who are too young to remember that song, it's called You Can Call Me Al. Look it up on YouTube. It's a great song. <laughs> it <laughs> is a great song. <laughs> Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, was singing with him. Mm-hmm. It was on the Graceland album. In your book, you know, you, you say that at a certain point, you kind of um, had this cognition or realization that uh, the horrific stuff you had gone through in life was almost like a prearranged uh, agreement or something. Um, do you care to comment on that at all?
1: Sure, yes. Well, I was I was working with a therapist. Um, I'd been working with her at before I got sober for eight years and then again for an additional four years after I got sober. So into two thousand and one and probably two years prior to that, she said that we're done. But she was like my my security blanket and I continued with her for a couple of years. But I'm pausing because I'm trying to remember the question.
0: Oh, prearranged agreement.
1: <laughs> prearranged agreement, yes. So she, you know, one of the things that my therapist said to me was you know, you need to find a way to forgive your father. You need to find a way to forgive your father. And I had this idea that forgiving him was gonna let him off the hook. Even though he had been dead for many years, he was still running my life because I was so identified with the abuse that I couldn't move forward without it. It was who I was. So I started asking for the willingness to be willing to forgive in prayer and meditation that would be my intention to just drop in and say okay i just i just want the willingness to be willing to forgive i didn't want him to get out scot-free it was like he already took his life and now i'm going to say it's okay, it's all okay so it took a little bit of time for that to settle into my being and then not too long after asking for the willingness to be willing something happened in a meditation i popped into I don't know. I want to call it like a transcendental state. I was, you know, I was out of the body um, in a, a realm that I wasn't really familiar with, and had this awareness telepathically that oh, and it was joyful. Oh, my father and I came to this life with this agreement to do this dance that we did together for a reason. It had great purpose, and I landed back into you know my body, and the meditation was out of that meditative state. And, and there was there was a sense of, oh, even though I don't like it, I can't unknow what I just realized. And so it took some time to, to settle in with that. And, you know, it wasn't too long after that, maybe a couple of years before I got to a point to really viscerally knowing that there was nothing to forgive, that there's even beyond forgiveness, there's nothing to forgive. You know, I got to another point where, there was a realization that wow he was the brave one the brave soul to come and be the despised one so it was you know it was a magical transition but it it, it was you know it happened over time and, and baby steps and i didn't really have a strong guide i didn't have anyone that was really assisting me in this except yeah. for the 12-step program that i was attending
0: some people might have a problem with that if we universalize it, and so maybe we can't universalize it, or I'd be interested in knowing what you'd have to say, but are, were the Nazis the brave ones? Is is ISIS the brave one, you know, burning people alive, and Boko Haram the brave ones, you know, kidnapping those girls and selling them into slavery and all. I mean, so many people do horrendous things, uh, okay. and it, it's really hard to have this totally magnanimous, forgiving attitude toward them and actually see them as... People who have taken on a very tough role to play, and uh, maybe that's a lot more generous than the actual reality of the situation. I mean, isn't there the possibility that there e- that evil incarnates in the world and uh, does evil things, and eventually faces consequences for those evil things?
1: That's the belief system of some people. I'm no longer of that belief. Mm-hmm. I've had another experience. And it happened with my awakening Mm -hmm. the moment that i landed on august 1st 2008 there was a complete flash of my entire life before my eyes and it was like this divine mosaic and every single piece was pristine and perfect and, and exquisite and there was this overwhelming sense of love and joy and i could see that every single piece had its place and it was all there for my awakening, for my heart expansion and awakening. And so there was no longer, from that moment forward, there was no longer a sense that life makes a mistake, that it's all here for humanity's heart opening and expansion and we need the, the polarity to come experience uh, as the souls that we are, the uh, evolution and expansion that, we're, that we've come to, to experience.
0: I would agree that life doesn't make a mistake, and that in the big picture, it's all for the purpose of evolution. Uh, whatever is happening, it's, the evolution is the overarching force that is that is moving us all along. But I wouldn't necessarily. I, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that 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 obviates uh, the law of karma. You know that that people just kind of do whatever and then get off scot-free and it almost seems that there has to be a, you know, you, you mentioned polarities I think, and um, can't, uh, there needs to be a sort of a compensation or a rebalancing, as you sow, so shall you reap.
1: Okay, yeah, so I see life as cause and effect. I kind of steer away from the word karma because it, there's so many people that have an idea that you're going to get punished for the wrong you've done. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just cause and effect. As Hitler did his atrocious deeds, uh, there's an effect. That's, that's part of his process of expansion and evolving. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be, you know, for his next life, he has to be tortured in order to evolve. But that's part of his uh, evolutionary process. So I like to see it as cause and effect. If you, if you cut back the hedges, they're going to fill out and grow in a, a, a fuller way. It's cause and effect. If you do something atrocious in this life, seemingly atrocious, it's, it's going to be fertilizer for growth in uh, your next form.
0: Yeah, well, I don't want to dwell on it too long because it's yeah. it speculative. I mean, at least for me it's speculative. It, it, there's things that make philosophical sense. Uh, and you can build a whole logic structure around such ideas, and you know, and people yeah. have. But I certainly am not qualified to speak with any authority about how it actually works. Um.
1: Right. Yeah. And all I can speak of is you know my own experience. So that 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 experience that I had when when I landed um, it was so potent. Again, like the experience of knowing that my father and I came to experience what we experienced for a purpose. Uh, I couldn't unknow what I had just seen and realized and saw that oh it's all perfect every single part of uh, this dance that we're doing and it doesn't mean that we sit back and say okay it's all right to maim and and slaughter and pillage but we do it from a state of open-hearted awareness and how is life moving me to serve this situation rather than uh, fighting against it and calling it bad or wrong It's, it's a you know it comes from a there's the movement that comes through me now comes in a different way, it doesn't come from a belief system.
0: Well, um, let's move in the direction of talking about when you landed, but let's cover some stuff before we get to that. Um, okay. And uh, kind of uh, give us an idea of, you know, a lot of people, they have a profound awakening of some sort, maybe they've been meditating for 30 years or doing some kind of spiritual practice and, and they turn around and say, eh, you don't need any of that, you don't need to meditate. Now, I think there's a correlation between the fact that they've meditated for 30 years and then they had awakening, and it it can seem once you arrive, you know, like, okay, you become the sun and you realize, oh, I've always been shining even though there have been clouds. It didn't matter whether there were clouds or not, I've always been shining. But it matters to the people for whom the sun is obscured by clouds whether or not there's wind that's going to blow them away. So what are some of the things that you've gone through as spiritual practices, and how do you feel that they have um, added to your... Toolbox, so to speak, of you know what kind of progress did you make with various things toward this mm-hmm. awakening?
1: Well, I I, I read hundreds <laughs> hundreds of books. I have listened to hundreds of DVDs. I followed many teachers. The two most profound teachers, I believe, in journey were Yogananda. I followed his Self Realization Fellowship uh, teachings for seven years, mm-hmm. and Eckhart Tolle. And you did Eckhart the Kriya
0: Tolle. Yoga practices and everything? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And I actually had a teacher in Hampstead, New Hampshire. I used to attend his ashram and go there for mantra. And he taught a Kriya class, a Kriya asana class on Monday nights in my center. And um, I did Kriya Theory 1, Kriya Theory 2, all the asanas. And followed that path for two years while following Yogananda's teachings. And Eckhart Tolle was in my pocket at that time. And then as I moved away from Yogananda, kind of weaned myself from that Eckhart Tolle was speaking my language. I got him. You know, those were my two longest teachers. But you know, I, I dabbled in Gangaji and uh, Muji and uh, Krishnamurti, and you know, I had I had a lot of teachers that I was hoping were going to wave their magic wand and show me the way. So, along with all of this, uh, in it was March of 98, I received my first Reiki initiation, and that too, I have to give that great credit for, for my, my spiritual practice. I was giving and receiving Reiki on a regular basis, that was like my day job now, and that evolved naturally. I was just giving it to family and friends and people from the church, and they said, you should put out a donation box, and I went, oh really? And then people started paying me, and it blossomed from there. But
0: Just in case was, people don't know what Reiki is, why don't you explain it?
1: It's an initiation that you receive from a Reiki master that helps attune and align the chakras and more specifically open up the crown, the heart, and the palm chakras for channeling healing energy.
0: So when you receive the initiation, is there some kind of transmission of energy or some kind of pot kind of thing that empowers you, not only benefits you, but then in turn empowers you to apply it to others? Well, my,
1: my first class, all I remember is standing there after the initiation with my hands over a student on the table and feeling like my feet were about this far off the ground and tears coming down my face. I was feeling such love and such joy. And I thought, oh, dear God, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is what I came to do. And so I just move fast forward uh, as, as quickly as I could with that started weaning myself off of the corporate world that I was I was still part-time plugged into. And January of 2000, I made a commitment that, okay, if this is my path, if this is the life that I'm to have, I'm going to start turning down contract jobs. I'm not going to do any more of this computer work. And we're just going to see uh, if life can take care of me. And inside of just a few months, my practice tripled.
0: That's great. And is that mainly how you support yourself now? It is, yes. Yeah. And then in addition to that, you do some spiritual counseling or one-on-one kind of things and go give satsangs here and there? Right,
1: yeah, satsangs, uh, Skype sessions, uh, workshops, and I work with people here in Ashland in person. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in California too, I'll be traveling next month doing some work.
0: Great. So, what was the nature of this dropping in, I think is the phrase you used, and um, you know what seemed to um, precipitate it?
1: I was in a relationship when I moved here. I moved here from the Boston area in December of 2006 to Ashland, Oregon. I, I was called. Um, Ashland literally I called me and, and that too is another story. Um, yeah, feel
0: free to tell the stories a okay we, are, sure, we have plenty yeah. of time here.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Well, I had some bricks. I had never heard of Ashland, Oregon. I had some bricks over the head kind of synchronicities. And, I mean, it was just like one right after another, Ashland, Oregon. Oh, that's strange. You know, who lives in Oregon? I thought it was all rainforest and, you know, making jokes about it. And and then it became very clear that I was supposed to attend the Psychic, psychic Children's Conference in Ashland, Oregon in, I believe it was 2003. And, and I came here. And as soon as I arrived in town, I had this head-to-toe vibrational experience that whispered, welcome home. Wow and and tears you know i'm just standing there on the sidewalk weeping I was like okay for some reason i'm supposed to live here and it took me a couple more years before my last child moved out and um and closed down my practice and picked up and moved here with my partner so he and i settled in and ashland is a pretty intense vortex much like sedona the energy here can really shake things up for you my partner had this idea that everything that was going on for him when we got here was about me. And I kept saying, this isn't about me, this isn't about me. And it didn't take very long before he decided to end the relationship. And, and so as we're going through this process, and I felt him pulling away, and I was going through my own inner turmoil around that. And, and then in April of 2008, I had my first Kundalini awakening. And my partner at the time was out doing a house sitting job. So he wasn't home and it was five o'clock in the morning. I got up and just had this white hot fire blowing through me. And I thought, I'm dying, I'm dying. And I literally crawled to the bathroom because I felt like I was gonna be sick and uh, managed to get up onto the toilet. And 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 I thought, what? I don't even know how to call for help. And um, at that point, the fire got so hot, it blew open it felt like a hole in my heart and then it did the same thing at my third eye and when it hit my third eye it was too much for my body and I, I released both ends and um and th- threw up uh. yeah both ends <laughs> yeah it was just it was intense it was powerful and
0: um bazooka effect <laughs> right
1: <laughs> yeah there's one way to clear, clear the pipes <laughs> and I made it back to bed and I was just lying there vibrating for hours, vibrating like I'd been plugged into 220 volts. I felt like a light body. I I wasn't really in touch with a physical form at all. It took days before I could really touch back into my physical being. But one of the things that I noticed almost immediately was that there were a lot of things that used to irritate me and that button was gone. One of the other things that began happening at that point
0: well, that reminded me of something. You, you know how in Waking Down they have what they call the wake down Shakedown. We'll talk about Waking Down probably in the course of this conversation. In, yeah. in the TM movement it was called Unstressing, but the basic principle is that we accumulate so much stuff over the course of perhaps lifetimes. And uh, you know, the more intense the stuff, the more intense the experience when the stuff gets released. And mm-hmm. um, that when there is a significant awakening, that um, if that stuff hasn 't been cleared out and by stuff I think everybody knows what I mean by stuff, you know just the impressions from various experiences we 've had over the course of our life or lives, and uh, that when that ex- when awakening happens, if that stuff hasn't been cleared out kind of gradually and inc- incrementally the the awakening itself can be a powerful solvent or something for mm-hmm. clearing it out more quickly, and you know the, the stuff you know we can really go through a lot of turmoil and emotional intensity and fears and all kinds of things so I mean mm-hmm. you had had been through a lot you know far more yeah. than most people so did you go through a phase where you were just wake down shake down big time mm-hmm.
1: I did yes
0: was that after well, the kundalini awakening or even before well it
1: was actually after the awakening but what happened was um, you know I'd done so many years and and of work working with teachers and working with uh, different programs and Alcoholics Anonymous and just many, many things. So I thought it was pretty clear, yeah. um, and and it was amazing to me how much how much moved with that Kundalini awakening, how much cleared from my field. Yeah. I, I felt I felt lighter. I felt more here. Uh, like my peripheral vision was just a little bit wider, and I was a little bit taller. And hmm. and what began happening shortly after the first Kundalini awakening was, I was tuned into it like this witness that would come and go. And I would notice that I was moving into a pattern with my partner, a little exhibited that we would get caught in. (laughs) And, And it was our challenge. And I would see myself moving forward, but not feeling the attachment or the identification with needing to be right, but kind of following that old pattern anyway to do that dance, to justify, make it all right, be understood. And this witness part, that was clearly like above and to the right of me watching this whole experience Mm -hmm. was just lovingly examining, but I was in tune with both of them. And what happened was I would get to a point where I could either put the hat on and do the dance, like get up on stage and and do the dance, or I would go, oh, isn't that interesting? There's really nothing going on here, and I don't need to do this. And I would stop. And my partner would go, what are you smiling at? I don't know, you know. I just I'm not feeling moved to respond or to react. And so what happens soon after that?
0: So sometimes and, the witness would go away, and you'd just be gripped.
1: Sometimes the witness would go away, but I would remember the experience, and so I could bring awareness yeah. to the moment when I was starting to move in that direction, to, you know, to react or defend or respond mm-hmm. in some way that was that was connected to a pattern, and not really. Connected to an emotion anymore, but that that witness state came in and out from you know from April until the landing on August first, and that seemed to be the the cementing. It was like it it landed. It was centered here. Here's where the witness is within this body,
0: and way, I way could shoulder.
1: <laughs> right. I could no longer separate it and and witness from a separate state. You know, it was, it's here.
0: But even though it's here, rather than being. Or Here or something does the same effect apply in which you are not so impulsive? You're, there's a kind of a, a, scru- uh, a kind of a I don't know if I want to use the word detachment, but a scrutiny, a, a discernment, discrimination that um, prevents you from just blindly getting caught up in things.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually it's it's a non-identification. It's a sense of allowing, allowing. You know, when I'm working with people, I, I call it you know planet Rick. And Planet Shelley, it's like, oh, that's how it is over there in that atmosphere. I had no idea because it's not like that here. Mm -hmm. And so really, there's just a sense of allowing both to be here. I guess you'd call it agreeing to disagree, but without any fireworks around it, any tension or contraction around it. It's just like, oh, that's the way it is over there
0: on your planet. Sounds like a a relinquishment of judgmentalism.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But what got me there... The fire of awakening was, you know, the beginning was the kundalini awakening in April, and then the, the continuation of the separation from my partner. And at one point, my almost 18-year-old cat died. Um, he, we were going through challenge for almost six months, tending to him, and he died, and it, it shattered my heart, you know, he was like my bud. And two days after, my partner sat me down and said, I, I'm ending the relationship, and I had a trip planned to the East Coast for two months. I was going to do this herbal uh, shamanic apprenticeship and had paid for it. And, you know, and I was leaving in a month. And, you know, it was just like my whole world just popped. I sat there befuddled. I couldn't imagine how anyone could be so hurtful. So, you know, I had all these things going on.
0: When the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. Yeah, yes,
1: yeah. (laughs) And so, what happened? You know, through uh, some of the work that I'd been doing at that point with waking down, and with the the depth of the experience that I had with the Kundalini awakening, I no longer had any more fix fixits. I couldn't positive affirm it away. I couldn't go realign my chakras in a way. I couldn't. I couldn't do anything. So what I did was I felt it. I dropped right into the pool of anger, rejection, abandonment, sadness, grief losing my house, the garden that was producing, you know, it had all this stuff and I was just feeling it. And at one point I was on the floor on my knees and I was just hitting the floor and wailing as all of this was coming up and out of me. And something happened, a door opened and I landed in this vast state of bliss while still feeling the pain. And I just recall having this, oh, Isn't this interesting? No one ever told me it could feel good while feeling pain, that both could be present. And that was, I don't know, that was, I guess, a green light for allowing myself to continue to feel all of the pieces that continued coming up for me as the relationship very, very quickly ended. Uh, I got my equity out of the house, was packing my bags, was moving, you know, I moved a day later was on an airplane to the East Coast. I mean, it all happened inside of about 10 days. It was crazy.
0: <laughs> that's interesting. I guess given the, the way your life had been for so many years, you must have had a kind of fairly ingrained tendency to suppress things, you know, to not feel things. Obviously, obviously, that's why you took all the drugs and everything, so, so as to not feel. And even if, even after you stopped taking the drugs and alcohol, there must have been a lot of stuff that hadn't been felt that was still kind of you know kind of mm-hmm. sp- packed down there um, yeah. and so it's interesting that a, a complete phew, expressive almost like spiritual temper tantrum or something yeah yeah precipitated and, or triggered a major shift
1: yeah it was a great catharsis yes yeah. so what happened after that was the awakening so august 1st after getting to all the details with my partner and we agreed on money and, and it was all said and done and again you know this big heartbreak and and just dropping into it and feeling and i was standing in the backyard and it literally was like something landed in my body i swear if someone had been standing next to me they they might have heard a thud (laughs) and (laughs) and it was like boom all of a sudden i was I was like a newborn i was touching my skin and my face i was like where have i been for the last at that point i was 48, for the last 48 years, who, who's who been here driving this bus? It was like the first time I was here and I was, I was breathing with the earth and the trees around me and there was just a sense of wholeness and connection and nothing needed. I was complete. Then, you know, not too long after that, maybe a day later, I started going, oh gosh, it always goes away. It always goes away. And I was wondering, is this one going to go away? And and it went on for almost four months, about three and a half months. I was just in a state of awe and bliss and bubbles of laughter over some of the silliest, craziest things. I walked by a pile of wood that said for sale, and I burst into tears of laughter. It just seemed so crazy. They're selling wood. Mother Earth gets it for free. you know, It's crazy. So I was in a complete state of bliss for four months. And then what happened was it became really the new normal. My system adjusted to that heightened state or frequency.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was listening to some of your satsang talks and reading your book, and all. It's it's interesting how how we acclimate. You know, um, we're very adaptable, and it's it's almost like a blessing that we do because life would be so intolerable for some people if we didn't. Um, <laughs> but it's relative to the the level of happiness. I mean, you could take a person who considers himself to be very happy, and if you could somehow impose his state on some other person who... You know what I'm trying to say? It's like one man's meat is another man's poison. Yeah, yeah. One person's suffering state could be extremely blissful for another person. It's all right. a matter of what you've acclimated to. Yes, yes. And yeah. one's, one person's blissful state could be abject misery to another person who you know, had actually risen to a much higher level of happiness and had acclimated to that. And of course, we, mm-hmm. don't, we don't just switch each other's uh, levels of happiness like that. But th- if we could, theoretically, we would, I think it would illustrate this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, my daughter actually taught me the greatest lesson in relativity when she was nine years old. I remember I, uh, she, was, she was ranting about the difficulty between, you know, switching between two homes and how tough it was and on and on. And I, I may have just come off of a crack bender you know, at the time that I was not feeling incredibly patient or sympathetic. And uh, I just, I launched at her, you know, you think your life is so difficult, you don't know what difficult is. And that was when I blurted out that my father abused me and sexually abused me and you don't know what it's like. And, and she just stood there like... This awakened teacher, you know, I, I will never forget the image in my mind. And when I was done with my rant, she says, well, I don't know what it's like to live in that sort of environment. But what I do know from my level of pain is that this is difficult. And she was like, all I know is that, you know, what's hard for me is hard for me. And this is really hard for me. And it was like something clicked. The light went on. And I'm like, oh, she's so right yeah. that it's all relative. Yeah. Yep. You know? Can only, you can only have your background of experience to splash it off of.
0: Yeah. And one thing I've found is that it is all relative, but as long as your life seems to be moving in an evolutionary direction, there seems to be kind of growing, ever-growing happiness. you know. And, um, and when your life isn't moving in an evolutionary direction, you, you get a few slaps in the face to let you know, and, and it's not so happy, uh, <laughs> or it's not so pleasant. Uh, and which is not to say that the unpleasant experiences might not also be evolutionary, but it's like nature gives us hints, pointers. Uh, it's like okay, yes. you're, you're on track, you're off track. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. And that's our that's our pendulum. You know, we watch, it, follow that, and and try and find center. It's like oh, this isn't the this isn't the path, and you can overcompensate, and, and it's really it's the you know finding finding our center um, through those experiences.
0: Yeah. Actually, I, that's one of the things I enjoyed about listening to a couple of your satsangs is the discussions you had about being attuned to, I don't know, we want to use the na- word nature, but being, being attuned to that intelligence which is our, our root ultimately, and uh, being sensitive to its promptings and kind of having intuitive feelings almost of, mm, go this way, go this way, not that way. You, know? uh, you might want to elaborate on that a little bit because you expressed it very nicely
1: yeah sure well one of the things that i encourage people to do is to find their yes Mm. and if there's i've had a lot of people say well what if i'm finding a no that's probably coming from the the mental construct or the ego if it's you know a contraction or if it's kind of a a loud no it's typically coming for some from something other than that soft creative impulse that comes through us Mm. what i call life's guidance so what happens for me now what is What if you want
0: to do something that you shouldn't do and you're getting a loud no from that which is guiding us? I mean, doesn't doesn't it also say no sometimes?
1: For me, what I do is if it if it doesn't feel like a yes, I don't move forward. So I don't get like a, a no anymore. I don't get that contraction of ah, don't do it. Right.
0: What I do is I tune in. You don't take in, it that far.
1: Right, I just tune in. I see if I you know, if there's a yes, it's like yeah, it's not. I'm not feeling a yes to do that, or to go there, or to work with this person. I'm not feeling a yes, and so there's some. There's obviously something else. Life wants. You know, life has something else in store for me, and so I wait for the yeses.
0: Yeah, you mentioned an incident where some friends had been pressuring you to go to a Fourth of July parade or something, and you kept saying, oh, I don't feel like doing that. And finally, you gave in and went to it. And then after about 15 minutes, you couldn't stand it and wanted to leave. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, it was overstimulating, and my whole body was vibrating from the people, the noise. I just don't do well in huge crowds and all that stimulation. I'm very yeah. sensitive. And um,
0: I was thinking about that yesterday because our local little natural food store had a sort of a freebie day where there were all, all these samples and free ice cream and everything. We went down there yesterday. It was just mobbed with people consuming sugar and eating free samples, and it was kind of intense, you know. And I was thinking of your story about the Fourth of July parade, and I was I, th- I thought to ask the question of Have you felt that over time you've gotten better able to be in chaotic situations or go to Walmart if you need to or whatever because you've gotten more stabilized and integrated?
1: I know my ceiling. If I agree to go to some sort of a gathering, I know that inside of probably two hours I'm going to be done. Um, I just know my limit um, and I don't push that because I want my body to be comfortable and I'm so tuned into it and I I can honor what... Its needs are where before I would push myself uh, because I, from the pressures around me or thoughts that I should stay longer or, you
0: know, right. whatever
1: it was that's coming in from the outside.
0: And when you think about your drug days, I mean, being strung out on crack for four days without sleep, I mean, imagine what your body was on some level screaming in, in protest
1: <laughs> yeah, against yeah. what
0: you were doing to it. And yet you were oblivious to that and keep smoking it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just about killed me. And that was my was that my first well no it was actually my second out of body experience um, so it was it was you know my last big crack coke bender where I was in the crack house for eight days. Family and friends were looking for me. It was the first time I'd ever been cut off by my drug dealer <laughs> huh. so what happened was I had the crack pipe in my hand and I just it was all done and I was out of my body and I was looking at this lump in the chair that was totally slumped over and witnessing my crack dealer and her partner trying to wake me up, trying to shake me out of it and really scared. And and I was, you know, completely in bliss. And I said, you know, I'm fine, you guys, you know, chill out, man. It's mm. it's so easy. I don't have to be there. And and then I had this moment of like, Oh my God, I don't I can't find my way back into the body. And now they're really scared and it seemed like eternity, I was in that timeless space, but eventually I finally landed back in the body. They shut me off. You know, I'm like, that's the lighter, and <laughs> uh, no huh? <laughs> they shut me off, called a friend to come get... Well, so there's a story before we get to that. They, sure. they called a friend who had been looking for me to mm-hmm. come get me, and the way they got his number was, uh, he actually did like a graveyard etching on my pad, he broke into my home, and took my little post-it note and did a little pencil and found the last number and called his friend at the phone company and they gave him the address. So he contacted that woman and said, I know where you live, I'm gonna come get her. I know she's there. So at that point, once they kind of, after everything that crisis was over, they called him and said, please come get her. She's all done. And so that was beginning of the end. That was in 94. That was the beginning of the end of my drug use. And then three years later, the alcohol took me out.
0: Right, the railroad track incident. Right. Amazing. Okay, we kind of loop back there into your shady past. we we'll come back to the landing, you know, phase as you put it, you say you're just kind of in bliss for four months laughing at wood piles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I get the sense, I think you just said it actually, that it's not like it went away, it's that you acclimated.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and during that process too, I was going through uh, a, a way of landing in the world that hadn't changed, but every but everything in my way had changed. The way the way I saw the world changed, mm. and so everything on the inside and the way I responded to life and the world had changed, but nothing on the outside had changed, and so you know, that was kind of my wake down, shakedown, as waking down calls it, Uh, all of a sudden, I'm looking at a new relationship, and it wasn't fitting in the old box. I couldn't even find the box. So I didn't know how to be in relationship. And there was a lot of messiness around that. And I had lost my filter (laughs) to evaluate my words or to pause before I said something. And I was blurting things out like hanging my dirty laundry because none of it mattered. I mean, there was no filter for uh, using discretion for how much to share and how much not to share, and I was just blurting everything.
0: <laughs> it was that phrase people use these days? Too much information.
1: <laughs> Too much information. Yeah, I got I got reprimanded a, a number of times that you know, Shelley, you might want to reconsider uh, writing a letter to the community and. Um, apologizing for what you just blurted, and I'm like, oh really? And I'd have to sit with him and go, oh, all right, well I can see how that might have hurt some feelings.
0: You mean the waking down community?
1: Yes, yeah. 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 We'll talk
0: about waking down at some point before too long. um, So you're kind of implying here that you have re-found your filters, some kind of a a, a more appropriate behavior has has gotten developed.
1: Gotten established. yes, I mean there's still transparency and vulnerability and there's also a, a maturing that happens in the awakening process where you learned how to move in the world uh, and hold both.
0: Yeah That whole thing actually interests me and that's a good that's a good segue into waking down because uh, as you'll explain to us the you know, the term waking down, you know people wake up. And it kind of has this up-and-out kind of energy, you know, transcendent, detached, aloof, gone. And, um, and, but then you know people discover that, oh, I'm still a human being, I still have a life that I'm trying to live here, and that necessitates a waking down, a kind of an integration of that transcendent consciousness into the nitty-gritty of your human life and all, all of its situations, relationships, and behaviors, and what you say and what you don't say, and so on. So why you, it would be worth talking about waking down a little bit, but also that principle in general would be mm-hmm. good Good to discuss for a bit.
1: Okay, yes. So in, in September of 2007, I had popped into one meeting uh, in February that same year, and I was like, this, this isn't for me, and, uh, and then again in September. Uh, Shortly before the meeting I attended in September, I kept hearing this sense or feeling this guidance to go back to waking down, go back to waking down, and I went, oh, I really didn't feel connected there, I don't know who those people are or what they're doing, And but I, I honor that now, yeah. and, uh, and I felt really strongly guided, so I went to this meeting, and Cece Lee was uh, the teacher uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in that particular meeting, and she was a visiting teacher, and I was sitting there just listening 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 and she looked at me and said and what about you dear the intensity of the eye contact and all that I had experienced for I don't know the hour prior there was some energetic thing that was happening to i like, guess a transmission something cracked and I felt as if it was the first time anyone had ever really seen me and um, again, there was this uh, this catharsis that happened. I was just, you know, bubbling up with all the stuff that was going on in my life and how difficult it is to be me. And, you know, this crazy seeking and I've been searching and, you know, there was this internal resistance because I didn't want to go down one more path, but it kept calling me back. And, you know, just the, the process once once I was done speaking after... You know, working with CeCe a little bit, and then getting feedback from the community in the room. I was like, wow, you mean it's really okay to be as messy as, as I am? It's okay to be to feel as crazy as I feel? Something began, it's like the pressure was let out of my field. There was a little more space for me to be here. And I remember uh, one of the people in the community handed me, Samuel Bondar's, uh, one of his books, and... And I cringed, I went, oh, you know, I, I was already at the point where I wanted to have a book burning and DVD burning party, it was like I didn't want to read one more book. Mm. But I went home with it and I devoured it and I was in, you know, for five years after
0: that. I just should mention that I i interviewed Cece Lee about a month or two ago and uh, under the past interviews menu on badgap.com there's a categorical index where people are all the interviewees are sorted out by various categories and I believe we have a waking down and mutuality category that lists all the waking down teachers uh, that that I've interviewed but I just want to say that one one cool thing about waking down in my experience as an outsider I've never actually gone to a meeting well I've gone to a couple things but never really been involved is there's this um, really rigorous self-scrutinizing ethical process that all the leaders of it go through and uh, they really give a lot of thought and attention to not letting anybody on, on any level of the organization get away with the kind of stuff that has, in many cases, given spiritual teachers a bad name. Yeah. Um, and when I say level, even that is misleading because there, there's not much of a hierarchy. There's a sort of even though there are stages of authorization and and you know maturity that you can go through as a teacher, there's a sort of egalitarian. Uh, we're all in this together kind of attitude that I think this. There's a system of checks and balances that keeps the group quite healthy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. And that was one of the things that really attracted me—that mm-hmm. there wasn't any kind of exclusion for religious beliefs. Whatever you believe, bring it—you know, bring it in. There's no one guru sitting at the top of some pyramid saying, "Follow me." It, it was let's let's follow each other and keep each other in check. And something could be said in the meeting, and it would trigger someone across the room, and then whew, the whole group would work on it and hold space and reflect and it was really powerful it felt to me at the time like the missing piece for my awakening Mm -hmm. all the other paths I had followed my I guess my understanding of all the other paths I had followed I don't want to make a projection here but the understanding of all the other paths I had followed was that you pop out you know, the tr- you go to the transcendent awakening, and and it's it's all about shutting down these first three chakras and not going into the body or allowing any of your human messiness. And so, when that was allowed, there was a great door that opened, and all of a sudden, I landed. You know, that was in September of two thousand and seven, and by August of two thousand and eight, I was here. <laughs>
0: mm. And it's interesting that many of the teachers who re- represent the kind of out, up and out teachings, and don't want to deal with the messiness, as you put it, um, end up falling flat on their faces in the messiness. <laughs> yes, Be- yes. Because they've, you know, they've repressed it or avoided it, and so it ends up going splat.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I became a mentor in waking down for about a year, and and you know it got even more challenging. There's just there's no room for uh, any kind of unintegrous behavior, you know, yeah. so everything everything was uh, was scrutinized. And, yeah. and it was good, it was good. I was, you know, for a year, I was a mentor and decided to turn my mentor shingle in because I was already a teacher in my other work. There was some conflict yeah. and it just seemed right for me to move forward in my work and uh, rescind that title.
0: It seems to me that if, if the emphasis of a teaching is, you are not a person and there's nothing you can do and nowhere to go and, and all that stuff, there's nobody doing anything. I, I mean, it seems to me that that invites um, problems because you know, you're not only a person, but you still are a person. Uh, you know, you're much more than a person, but yeah, you, you still are a person. And if you totally deny your personhood, it's going to catch up with you. I'm I'm kind of being a little bit redundant here, but there are teachings who emphasize which emphasize that so much that it's it's kind of their main thing. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: One thing that always interests me is the uh, the continued progression of evolution. There are some people who might say, "Well, I'm done," or so and so is done. And <laughs> I don't think there's any such thing as done. There are Maybe milestones, and there may be irreversible milestones where you've really gotten established in something, and it just doesn't seem that you're regressing you know back to a, mm-hmm. to a more you know less evolved state, so to speak. Do you agree with that? do you, do you kind of it's, see uh, is there always a next horizon, so to speak?
1: Absolutely, yeah, so I'll tell a funny story. so when I woke up and then really realized that you know I'm here and, and it's not going away. Good yeah. God, thank you. So, I, I was brought to a point in my awakening where life went tch, tch. You've become identified with the awakened one. <laughs> and so, there was, uh, I don't know, there was this experience that I had where I could see it and, and it, was, it was a new ceiling. And in recognition of that and kind of releasing what it is to be awake and uh, that I have arrived, there was a sense of freer than free there's more there's more and as long as we continue to stay open to the possibility of i don't know what it is i have no idea what it is or uh how big it gets there's always there's always room for expansion and i love those little spurts of growth that i sense where you know it's like oh there's a little more of me online now and that was rich yeah (laughs)
0: You hear a lot of teachers say, and I think I've heard you say, things like, well, this is it right here, right now. This is good enough. You know, don't be looking for something else. Um, You know, just sort of rest in the presence of, of this moment. How do you reconcile that with what you just said about, well, there's always something more?
1: There's always something more when you're not looking for it. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't looking for something more in my awakened state. I thought I had arrived, and there was just this uh, this experience that I had. I believe I was just sitting in nature, and um, this realization came to me that oh, it was actually it was shortly after my second Kundalini awakening. There was an opening. Told us about that. Okay, yeah, I've had three, ah. and all three were as intense as the first. Uh, the third so one was actually intense. Two and the most three intense. must
0: have been after you landed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's hear about it. Okay. Um, And also we'll get back to that question I just asked. Okay, great. The Um, reconciliation of being here now and yet there's more.
1: Right. Okay. So in in June of 2010, I had uh, another Kundalini awakening. So this second one was uh, from, the first one of course was from, I've already mentioned, was from the root and, and it blew out these two places that my heart and my third eye were the most intense experiences of the of the fire that came through so the second one was from the root and it came all the way up and through and exploded out my crown this one the fire was so intense I guess if I were to explain how it felt for me I it was about 10 days I couldn't even walk with shoes on because it was too jarring to my body so it felt like everything on the inside was connected on loose hinges and was raw so every movement that i made was like an owie inside <laughs> and so i had to walk gently in bare feet after that kundalini awakening again it was the same the same sort of experience there was a, a greater sense of expansion more kind of conditioned beliefs and ideas i noticed had fallen away there was a, a greater sense of non-identification i guess it, you know like being in the world but not of it I was here, and and there's nothing here that I need to be free or happy. And so it was shortly after that that I had the the awareness. I believe it was shortly after that that I had this awareness of freer than free. It was like, oh, I was identified with free. And then again in March of 2011, Fukushima tsunami Mm -hmm. was the night before that happened. I had my own personal tsunami. We had actually had a waking down meeting in my home, and by eight o'clock I was holding my head. I had slid out of my chair and I was on the floor with my hands kind of covering the light. Uh, in the this, meeting. In the meeting. Right. This massive migraine coming on, and I don't get migraines. And and I told you know s- s- please, we're going to have to leave this meeting as it is. And people were filtering out, and and I always follow and lock the door, but. I couldn't get up to do that. I crawled from the spot that I was in to my bed and peeled myself out of my clothes. So this Kundalini uh, started in the head and I had this massive fire in my brain. And I just had the sense of, I wonder if I'll ever be able to think again. I wonder if I'll ever be able to reason. My brain is being fried and, and it moved down through me. So on day two, so I was in bed now. It was Thursday and I had not moved Thursday afternoon. It hit the cauda equina at the base of my spine. And all of those nerves were lit up and I was paralyzed. I couldn't move at that point if I wanted to. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't feel from like my chest down. And I couldn't feel to move it, except that I was feeling excruciating pain in my lower back and my thighs. It was just
0: like over the top. How long did this go on? Hours. hours. I, I, oh, so not yeah. days, but hours.
1: That part of the experience went on for so hours. So you, you and
0: didn't then, wet the bed or something, you were able to get out eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. sometime Thursday afternoon, I was able to uh, get, I was able to move my body. Um, I got up, I called a friend. He wasn't available that day, but he came back the next morning. So it was on Friday morning, he came and took care of me. Um, one girlfriend came in that evening and just tended to my needs, you know, my whole body was on fire and, and she was just gently mopping me off and she called me up a couple of days later. She's like, I was in bliss for 24 hours after tending to you. Mm-hmm. And then the same happened to the person who came on Friday morning and took care of me. He you know, made, brought me some soup. Um, he stayed with me for a few days. A Few days later, he got me outside like holding my arm and walking me like a little old lady I was in my bare feet just getting me outside. Wow. <laughs> so um, that was the big one and since that one i have had many many experiences of the kundalini moving through me now freely
0: Seems do you feel quite um radically transformed after that one radically transformed i mean it, seemed like was, it was so intense you must have felt like a new a new me after after yes, going through it there was
1: there was a greater sense of landing in i guess my center my strength no longer having any I guess any fear about uh, how I'm looking or what people think about me or how it needs. I was already free from a lot of that, but that just kind of tore down all the walls. There was nothing left but this open channel for life to move through Mm. without any kind of adjustment here and there with the reasoning of discernment. There was actually kind of a, I don't know a meeting the person on their level that wasn't of the mental realm at all it was just something that okay so life is meeting this person here because this is what is going to be most pertinent to where they are in their life and so from that place it was incredible how I got to I got to experience the wisdom that was flowing through me I don't want to say as an outsider but being blessed by this wisdom that was flowing through me but not of me
0: mm-hmm. I wonder if the intensity of these kundalini experiences was in any way related to the damage you had done to your nervous system with all the drugs, and you know if somebody else might not have experienced these things so intensely. Um, But yeah, in your case, there had there's a lot of intense clearing and repair work to be done.
1: Absolutely, yeah, I believe that that's what it was. Yeah, Mm. that there were you know just so many. Burnt out wires and nadis and meridians that were, you know, completely out of whack that that needed some recalibration. So, yeah.
0: so I mean that kind of um, leads to the question of, you know, what would you say to people who don't know their chakra from their elbow and don't seem to have any kind of kundalini things and they might be feeling like. And nothing ever happens for me. I'm just kind of a, a slug, you know. And look at her; she's having all these profound things. Um, you know, sometimes flashy experiences can evoke envy in in sp- mm-hmm. other spiritual seekers who aren't having them.
1: You know, I just I work with that person. I help them look at you know their beliefs that it needs to be a certain way or what are they looking for. I mean, it, it's all it's always organic and. Specific to the person that I'm working with, I never know what's going to come through or how it's going to serve them. I'm just I'm open and receive the information that comes through again. That's most pertinent to that person.
0: Yeah, I mean, would you agree that profound awakenings can take place without a lot of intense stuff of your sure. nature? That you so it can be real, real smooth for some people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I sense that that these very difficult, rocky paths to awakening are, we're like pioneers. We're opening the door for a new way to come through, that once we've got so many of these people awake, that it doesn't have to be that difficult, that it doesn't have to be that challenging. I've had many, many people that I've worked with that have awakened and some of them are just like coming from the cheeriest little lives. I mean, there's really no impetus for, pushing them to look for something better, except that they have this, this this deep sense that there must be something more.
0: You probably know the story of the hundredth monkey.
1: Uh-huh, yes I do.
0: Mm-hmm. So might be worth mentioning in brief that it was well, I think it was something that some scientists had actually observed where uh, on some island Uh, You know, the monkeys were eating these yams and and some one monkey learned how to wash the yams off or something to get the sand Mm -hmm. off them and and then the other monkeys started watching him do it and learned how to do it also. And when a certain number of monkeys had started doing it, maybe it was maybe a hundred, monkeys on adjacent islands all, all of a sudden started doing it without yeah. any, you know, it didn't have to grow incrementally, it's like monkey consciousness communicated this new right. knowledge.
1: <laughs> right. And so, I,
0: I kind of think that something like that's going on with spiritual awakening.
1: Yes, I agree. Yeah, You don't have to have the sand in your mouth to know to wash the yam now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, that that point of pioneers is a good one, it's like a lot of ground has been cleared.
1: Right, yeah.
0: I mean there too that that's kind of a metaphor ground- ground being cleared, but you know when dirt has been dug up once it's a lot easier to dig up the second time and so there' have been a lot of people over the last you know forty fifty years that have been forging a, a spiritual path, and it, it seems to me that that path is getting wider and more easily to, easy to travel
1: mm-hmm. yeah I agree
0: mm. absolutely so uh where should we go from here in this conversation, what, what would you like to talk about that we haven't touched upon?
1: I'm waiting for words, I mean there were, there were a couple of things that we were going to come back to and I don't recall what they were oh. at this
0: point. So did, we were going to talk a little bit more about the reconciliation of this uh, teaching that's quite prevalent of just sort of accepting the moment, being in the moment, settling into the moment, and uh, you know, not ex- looking forward to some glorious future. Reconciliation of that with the fact that the future keeps getting more glorious—I mean, the, or the present keeps getting more glorious as time unfolds—and and there seems to be a vast range of spiritual evolution that that one can yet encounter. To some people's minds, that might seem to be contradictory.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, when I'm working with people, and and they have you know, they have a situation going on, they have something that they're calling uh, a problem it's it's where all of the energy is is being filtered it's i call it like an energy leak all your energy is being siphoned into feeding this sort of entity and the only way that it can become a problem is an idea that it needs to be different so what i ask people to do is just see if you can reframe it see if you can sit back and 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 allow this situation to be here without any need for it to be any different without any idea of its purpose without any thought process around it at all to just see it because you know life really is neutral it has All it says is, thank you, another way for me to express. Oh, thank you, another way for me to express. Oh, thank you, another way for me to express. And so here's the situation that all of our our mental, societal conditioning has taught us to label it in, in a certain way. So see if you can move into it as if it's the first time you've ever seen this and not know what it's for and not have any idea of, what it means to get rid of it and then I'll be happy or and then I'll wake up. See if it might be, if it's possible, for it to be a piece of the puzzle and not knowing what it's going to open open you up to for the, next, for the next step. To just be completely with it, allow it to be here. I already know it's okay for it to be here, otherwise it wouldn't be here. So let's see if we can just be with it as it is and allow whatever it is that's coming up for you to come up, and sometimes tears arise, and sometimes an opening happens and they laugh, they're able to see that they were creating this big drama around something that really doesn't mean anything. And what happens is just like awakening, the, you know, the, once that pressure valve is open, once the tension is relieved from the situation, the creative impulse, something else can move through in another way. and and guide you to resolve the situation without all the drama without all that kind of frenetic energy complicating it i'm not sure if that answered the question i'm not sure if
0: it was a good point i'm not sure if it did either but um, let me me come back at you with something so what i understand you two have just said is that if we have a sort of a a non-meddling attitude toward the things that come up in our lives if we don't insist that that things happen any particular way, if we recognize that the things that come up, uh, that all is well and wisely put, and things come up for a reason, not necessarily an intellectual reason that we could articulate, but that there must be some evolutionary purpose to the things Mm -hmm. that that roll along in our lives. If we can take that perspective, then we don't interfere with that which is actually driving the dream bus. You know, we allow the driver to do the driving. Remember that Greyhound ad? You know, it's such a pleasure to take the bus and leave the driving to us. I don't know If you remember that one, but you know, we just um, we allow kind of a, the nature's intelligence to to run the show if if we don't keep interfering with it. Is that what you were trying to say?
1: Uh uh-huh, Yes, and what it does is it right sizes that mental construct. The ego is valuable, but it's meant to be as a tool. It's not meant to be the driver. Exactly. So once that is right sized and and in the passenger seat riding shotgun as our copilot rather than the pilot, mm-hmm. then life can have its undulations. You know, it can have its natural unfolding. And so I encourage people to sit down and meditate because they really feel like. That's what they want to do in the moment, not because they want to meditate for something. Right. Meditate because it brings you peace, because it brings you joy, because, because it's what you're feeling moved to do in the moment, not because you want to change something. And what happens is things change. Anyway. Anyway, right. And so there's a greater, you know, there's an expansion. There's a greater sense of the, you know, the one that we are, that is always here, present in this form, that there's a deepening with that sense of, of what's really here. The more we can quiet that mental noise. So whenever you notice that you know the mind is directing, that it's up there telling us to do something or go somewhere or fix something, just say thank you, but I'm gonna do something else and and drop into the body and and just see what see what's here. Mm. And what it does is eventually it just cuts the hard wire. And then there's something else that Leads the way rather than coming from the mental realm, it comes from knowingness, it comes from a deep place of stillness.
0: Yeah, so one of the things I think I just heard you say is that it's not that we're going to become egoless, but just that the ego will take its proper place in the scheme of things, and you know, it won't be trying to run the show in a comparatively inept way compared to that which is much more capable of running the show.
1: Yes. It's, you know, it's artificial intelligence has taken over and this is just, you know, turning it back to where it belongs, um, letting it, it be in the co-pilot seat.
0: So as I said, that kind of didn't answer my question, but maybe we've kind of covered it, which is, it's like, you know that song, Is This All There, all there Is to the Circus? Mm-hmm. Um, you Yes, I
1: used to sing that, wailing it from the heart, you <laughs> know, in early sobriety, <laughs> and when I was drinking. <laughs>
0: yeah, so it's like there are certain popular sayings and teachings in the spiritual world that this is it, you're already enlightened, you can just uh, accept things as they are. But I think that kind of bothers some people because they might feel like, you know, it's like, it isn't good enough, I, I don't want yeah. to accept things as they are, it, it, it could be better than this. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think they're right but at the same time i think there's a a need to accept things as they are yet realizing that they can and will get better and and there, so there yeah. seems to be a contradiction in that
1: right yeah it creates a rub you know it's like it's it you know it feels similar to the experience that i had of how do i forgive my father if i forgive him you know it's like letting him off the hook but this is like if i allow what's here to be here what if it's not good enough <laughs> yeah um, I remember my my first interview, my first session with Samuel Bonder in Waking Down, and he was talking and talking and talking about, you know, blah, 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 blah and he said, and, uh, about awakening, and he said, and when you get over the disappointment, he's like, da, 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 like, wait, wait, wait a minute, back up, whoa, what do you mean when I get over the disappointment? And um, and he started talking about the ordinariness of awakening. And that's, you know, it really is, I mean, there's nothing but here, and when, when all of those ideas that it has to be something else are put in their place you know check thank you check thank you and and we stop going into that pattern when we stop that when we break that go to there's something else that can come through but as long as we're having an idea that this isn't it it's got to be something else because I already know who I am mm-hmm. it's you know once we know there's no room for all knowingness it's a closed door yeah but if we don't know what's going to happen if we have no idea what it's supposed to look like it's an open door and then all knowingness can come through
0: Mm. life
1: can come through and show us it's potent all I can say is that yeah it's ordinary and it's all I ever wanted
0: and so I I suspect you're not disappointed
1: not at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah and when you know when I had I've told many people this, and you've probably already heard me say it in some of my talks, but boy, uh, when I had my awakening, the mind went still. It was like, it literally, you know, like in the, the movie The Matrix, somebody had come and cut the hard wire. Hmm. And if that was all that ever happened in awakening, I would have been oh so forever grateful yeah. because it's like the still lake, you can see the reflection of the clouds, you know, moving on past, but they're not creating a ripple, and you know, the thoughts just pass on by, but they don't create, a, they, don't, they don't have a scent to them, there's no bait, I don't take it anymore, it doesn't, mm. I don't mind the mind. <laughs>
0: yeah. Here's a question that came in, um, Tara from London asks, what advice would you give someone who feels like they have not yet found the work they were born to do? You previously mentioned at one point, I believe, doing Reiki, that you knew it was what you were meant to do. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the work that you're meant to do is the work that you're doing right now.
0: (laughs) What if you're working in some cubicle and you hate it?
1: Yeah, well, it's 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 a stepping stone. There's you know there's a deep sense of knowingness, and what gets in the way of moving from that place of knowingness is. You know a belief if i quit my job i won't be able to support my family if i become the artist that i know that i'm supposed to do and that feels light that feels open Um, what if what if there are a lot of you know there's a lot of fear that keeps people stuck in a place that doesn't feel like a fit for them just like for myself you know with the corporate the corporate life that i did for 10 years i hated it it was so counter to my being it was destructive it was not at all, um, exciting or stimulating. It just felt it felt fake. It was it was of a world that I didn't belong. And I was trying to force myself to fit into where I thought a good American woman ought to be and following like the dream, the American dream. And um, it got to a point in I already talked about that part of the story, I mean, it just got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. Drinking was the only thing that allowed me to do it for as many years as I did but mm. so it's really you know checking all of the beliefs is it true? Is it true that I have to do this otherwise you know whatever the whatever the thought
0: is yeah and well, you know there's a reason they call them starving artists though I mean you know. It might be that you do have a family to support and that you're not going to make a living if you just drop your job and, and go and try to be an artist or something. I mean, that's the kind of thing a lot of people deal with. I mean, you yourself told the story about how you were selling your possessions in order to pay the rent and you know, running out of money, running out of money, and, and thinking that you should go ahead and get a job, but this little voice kept saying, not yet, wait. just wait. Well- yeah,
1: wait was the word. It just came through so softly and so clearly. It was just wait, like a loving mother would say to her impatient child, wait. Mm-hmm. And I I know to listen to that. So every time I you know went into fear, like I gotta go get a job. My God, you know I'm not making enough money. And and I would sit and I'd look at the classifieds and I'd go into stillness. This is the job. Wait. Mm-hmm. Like uh, oh. And you know and the fear would bubble up and I'd say yeah, but how much longer?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> And so, you know, it's really, it's not having an idea about what my life needs to look like. Okay, so I surrendered to it. I said, if it means that I'm meant to live under a bridge, you know, because that's where my mind would go. It's like, worst case scenario, if I don't do something soon, I'm going to be pushing a cart and living under a bridge. (laughs) And then I went, okay, well, what is my belief about that that says it's bad? What if being homeless and happy is my next step in this journey? Mm. Okay, well, I surrender to whatever it is that life has in store for me. I'm clearly hearing uh, another thing coming through me, and it's not, go get a job.
0: Yeah, I think maybe, I don't know much about birds, but I think some birds have the ability to kind of rearrange the eggs in the nest and yet continue sitting on them. Um, So I think maybe, we don't want to give pat answers with this kind of thing, but so for maybe for some people, you know, you don't need to make radical, abrupt, gut-wrenching changes in your life, you know, erratic, sudden Changes, but you can kind of get a momentum going in a certain direction, you know, while still paying the bills. But you get this momentum going, and eventually the momentum kind of becomes the the main thing.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what I did. You know, I I continued with my taking contract jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, doing work on my computer the first couple of years of my Reiki practice. Yeah. And what happened was, I kind of made a deal with with God. I made a deal with life. I said, okay, I'm feeling strongly guided that I need to drop that world. And it was the cash cow, you know, it was it was what was supporting me. I said, Yeah. But I feel this impulse that it's time for me to let go of that and move on with this. And I said, Okay, if this is if this is what I'm meant to do, I really need to be shown that I'm going to be taken care of. Yeah. And as soon as I made that decision, okay, January first, two thousand I was being flooded with phone calls, flooded with phone calls for contract work oh, with the computer. Oh, and okay. it was almost like the universe saying, how serious are you?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> are you really committed to this agreement that you've just made? And I just kept saying, um, no, thank you, I'm not taking you any more work and referring the work out to one of my colleagues. Mm. And again, you know, inside just a few months, my, my practice tripled and, um, and then it began expanding. Mm moved into other energy modalities and body work and nutritional guidance, and and of course all of that shifted when I moved here to Oregon and, uh, and got to sit in Ashland for almost four years wondering what's
0: next. I'm reminded of a couple of things from the Bible, you know, this that, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else shall be added unto thee, there's that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also some verse which is something like, the, the father knows what the son needs even before the son knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what where that's from, but I think it's from the Bible someplace. So it's it's not like you can do whatever the heck you please, and everything's just going to be taken care of for you. There is that element of seek first the kingdom of heaven, and which you were doing. I mean, you're on this spiritual quest, and you know that was that was your main priority. And yet, you know, in retrospect, you can probably see that there was a, a kind of a you were taken care of in, in ways that you might not have even foreseen. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, And that kind of accrued from your focus on finding your deeper truth. Yes, Um, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was, you know, it was really, it was just teasing out, you know, the entanglement of all of my beliefs by showing me over and over and over in many different ways that you're taken care of, you're taken care of. Look at the mess of the life that I came from. Wanting to, you know, as a child, kill either my father or myself. I have no idea how that didn't happen.
0: Yeah.
1: And taken care of, taken care of. I will tell a funny story at this point. This sure. might be a good place to plug something in. After my Reiki 2 class where I was working, con- you know, consciously with the, the symbols that they teach in Reiki 2, I was holding a picture of nine-year-old Shelly. and had been doing a lot of distant Reiki on nine-year-old ah. Shelly. So sending her lots and lots and lots of Reiki and just blessing her and holding her and blessing her and holding her. And again, I popped into that trance, that space where, you know, wasn't really aware of anything but that. And remember, as a nine-year-old, having this sense of, you know, really just wanting to, wanting to figure out, and many, many ways and thoughts of how I was going to kill him. And many, many ways and thoughts of how I was going to kill myself. And, and every time I would get to a point of making a plan to do it, I couldn't go through with it. There was something holding me. You know, there was something holding me and protecting me from, from making a movement in that way. And all of a sudden, I popped back into this awareness, dropped the picture, and I went, oh, my God, it was me. Wow. It was, it was me that was holding her it was my first sense of uh, this sense that I've experienced many times now of infinite parallel realities they're all here at the same time there is no time and that that nine-year-old Shelly is right here and I'm here too supporting her from another another uh, parallel reality Uh, so it was it was wild and and a little bit spooky I went oh that rabbit hole is a little bit too deep to go down you know by myself
0: (laughs) you want to get really rich make a movie of your life, <laughs> that would be this sort of like personal sci-fi kind of thing, you know, with the spiritual right. elements and all the, all the difficult stuff and the, the 50-something-year-old Shelley attending to the nine-year-old Shelley and Right, <laughs> yeah,
1: it could be a fun one, fun yeah. <laughs> yeah. and messy and, and, and
0: really inspiring too. So. It could be an interesting movie, you, you yeah. can get Gwyneth Paltrow to play the adult Shelley there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reminded of that movie, Sliding Doors, remember, did you see Sliding Doors? Yes,
1: I did. Yeah, it was great.
0: It was yeah. cool, it was like two alternate realities that went off in different directions according to whether she got on the subway or not.
1: Right, right, yeah. yeah. Well, I've had that experience, actually, um, with uh, the out-of-body experiences that I've had, um, somewhat, so is this a good place to sure, anytime. El- elaborate a yeah, little yeah, bit on how much time we have left Don't here? Don't worry about but, it. So in 1983, when I had this car accident, I was a passenger in the back seat oh, of yeah, a car. Yeah,
0: I haven't even talked about your car accident. Yeah, so it's just like yeah, a whole another chapter.
1: It is, yeah. <laughs> it was my first night out after my daughter was born. She was three months old and was at home with the nanny. So I was out drinking with my friends, and uh, the person that was driving the car was showing off to his friend the um, you know the power of his brand new Cougar. And I was in the back seat. None of us had seat belts on. We just come from a club. And he went to pass someone, he was doing over 100 miles an hour, and the car, two cars in the right-hand lane, one pulled out to pass the car in front of him, not realizing he had a rocket coming up behind him. And so Nick locked up his brakes and it put us into you know we're doing 360s and it threw us into the median and we hit the, the tree rear end first which catapulted me through the rear window mm. and I went flying through the trees and my clothes were all shredded off and one of my shoes was ripped you know the leather strap was the only thing that was left around my ankle and clump you know there was this lump of body on the ground like and 50
0: feet from the car right
1: 50 feet from the car yeah and so I'm above my body and looking and, and I could hear people yelling for me. And and then the police arrived and then my sister arrived. She'd come from the club and she saw a flash of the cougar emblem, that the cougar on the, uh, the hood of the cart in the woods. And she went, that's my sister and screamed at this guy to stop. And so she arrived and, and they found me but the whole time everybody was yelling, I was saying, I'm over here. I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. Okay. But my mouth, you know, nothing was happening. I was looking at her going, she doesn't look very good. You <laughs> All bloody and half naked and bleeding in a lot of places. Um, so I had this sense really long after that, that what happened was there was a reality that went on from that position, from that place. And then I woke up. Because there was a gap, you know, and and it wasn't clear at that time, it was it was clear after when I began meditating, even when I began meditating, while I was still drinking, there was an awareness that happened around this incident, that there was a reality that continued, that that body didn't get up and get recovered. That reality went on with, you know, my three month old daughter living without a mother in that dimension in huh. that parallel reality and then I woke up because we don't die it's like I wasn't done I woke up I'm in the hospital and I've got stitches and all this stuff around me and so slipped into another parallel reality to continue my quest huh. um, to continue my, my search for what it is that's this here you know for the one
0: so the sliding doors mentioned kind of triggered this memory of this conversation. So what you're saying is that there was a the potential for dying at that point, but somehow some other destiny clicked in. And so you took this course instead of this course. Right, because right. Because you, so, you had some destiny to fulfill.
1: Right. And so I don't have this sense of you know going sliding doors going back and... and tending to the trauma of uh, that lifetime with my my daughter growing up without a mother. But I do use um, pictures of my children when they were younger to help heal the wounds of, you know, the trauma of growing up with an alcoholic mother. Yeah. And and I have this sense too that it's it's creating a ripple effect of all of the parallel realities that we've come and we're doing this dance in.
0: Why not? Time is really very relative. Did you know that if you look at like the Hubble Deep Space Field, for instance, and you see the light from galaxies that are 13 billion light years away, uh, it, take, it took 13 billion years for those photons to reach us. But if you were riding on one of those photons, if you were one of those photons, space collapses to zero and you are here instantly.
1: Yes. So yes.
0: time and space are very malleable. And, mm-hmm. and why not look at a picture of your child from 20 years ago and actually have an influence on the course of their life?
1: Right, right, yeah. Have you read my recent parallel realities awakening tips?
0: I read both of those two books: the enlightenment awakening tips and uh one about suffering and oh, okay. you know, kind of a biographical thing. Those are the two things I think I read.
1: Yeah, I was actually mentioning my uh, the awakening tips. It's a monthly newsletter that no, I send read out. That. Nope. Okay, yeah. So um, I'll sh- I'll share another fun story. I titled this one uh, Parallel Realities because it was my first experience of something really solid happening that was, um, you know, miraculous. I just got back a couple of weeks ago from a trip on the East Coast working, seeing my kids and my grandkids and my family from Florida to New Hampshire. And um, the day before I got on the plane, I came down with a whopper of a cold. Mm. And, um, And I thought, oh, well, let's see how this is on the airplane. You know, my ears all plugged up and... So I got on the plane and, you know, it was challenging, but I was just with it, you know. I don't have a story about things anymore. I was just with it, with every tissue, with every blow. And I changed flights in New York and was pulling all these tissues out of my pockets and out of my wallet where I'd tucked many things and, and threw all the tissues away. And when I arrived in Florida, I went, oh no. I only brought two pair of earrings for the trip. Earrings. Um, my earrings. My favorite earrings, I had one pair on my ears, and the other pair were wrapped up in a tissue and tucked in a particular pocket in my wallet, but there was a corner of it sticking out. And so I threw everything away, I threw my earrings away. So there I was in Florida, i was sharing it with my, the story with my mother. And and we went out, we had our bags sitting next to my water jug and it leaked and everything got wet. And, and so everything was emptied from our wallets and our bags. And there were no earrings, you know, I threw them away. It was very clear. There's no pocket or flap in my zipper pocket where the earrings were that they could have hidden. And so what happened was I was working with a client and reminding him of the infinite parallel realities and of our infinite nature. We're having this very deep talk. And after I got off Skype session with him, I went, oh, look where my energy is going I'm just I was so focused on I've thrown a pair of earrings that meant a lot to me they were a gift from a dear woman and that's where my energy was that they're gone and I went oh yeah we can play in consciousness all realities exist here and now so there is a reality where my earrings are still here with me I'm just not tuned into it yet so what I did was I you know, I put awareness on the, the enthusiasm, the excitement that I felt about having my earrings back in my possession, having them arrive in my wallet and not needing to know how they got there. And so many times on my trip, I'd been in and out of that zipper pocket. There were only two things in there, my license, my credit card, and well, three things and a safety pin. My earrings were gone. And so I stopped into a restaurant and reached in there for my credit card, and there they were, my earrings just lying yeah. there. And I went... Nice! That was so fun!
0: Yeah, I (laughs) did it.
1: It was a great experience. So what happened was my flight home, so I hold that as a pearl, as a great pearl in my awareness for every time to pull back and realize where my energy is going uh, when something kind of challenging happens in the moment. So my flight home, long I've been gone for a month I wanted to get home and um, I arrived at the airport in Minneapolis for one of my connection flights and my flight to LA was uh, delayed an hour and a half and I went oh there I am I'm like I'm gonna miss my connection to Medford I'm not gonna get home tonight and then I went oh yeah the earrings and I pulled myself back to center and I looked at her and I said oh, please look again, there must be another choice. And she's like, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. And I said, oh, please look again, there must be another choice. And I just kept seeing the excitement of me arriving in Medford and my friend arriving with my juice drink for me. And so what happened was, she went, you know, her eyebrows went up and she went, wait a minute, she got on the phone and it took about 10 minutes and she got off the phone. She said, this woman I was just speaking to, she said, we are not allowed to do this. This woman is traveling on miles and another airline and but i feel like i'm supposed to do this for you and she said we've got a flight home for you and you're going to go through salt lake city and we're going to get you to medford and you're going to get home 10 minutes earlier and it was so funny i just looked at her name tag and her name was grace and Oh, I went, nice. i said you really are grace thank you <laughs> yeah so we can play you know we can really play in consciousness and we get to a point where you notice where your energy is going and you can you know, take one conscious breath and drop back into center and, and see what it is that, again, that cause and
0: effect, yeah. here's
1: the cause and, you know, the next moment is going to be the effect. And What am I creating right now?
0: That's a great story. And um, I think the thing to point out in it is that, um, you know, there's the secret and that, that kind of thing. Um, you don't just put post-it notes on your refrigerator wishing for this, that, and the other thing, There, there, there has to be the component of... You know, deserving than desiring, creating the sort of deeper reality in your life that allows these synchronistic events to take place more readily. Um, There's a, a quote from the Smriti, which is a Vedic scripture, which says, The action of great men gains success through sattva, purity of consciousness, and not from the means of action. So it's sort of like, again, it's like, seek ye first the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven and all that else should be added unto thee. I think right. it's important to throw that in there because people start yeah. listening to these things like The Secret and they, they feel like all you really need to, to do is have the desire. But that's like trying to shoot an arrow without pulling it back on the bow first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's really, it's, you know, for me, it's, it's about love. It's that energetic of love and enthusiasm I tell people you know bring on the fuzzy bunny face if that's what it takes (laughs) to get that warm spot in your heart and have the intention but part of the most important part of it is to let go you know to let go you can't hold on to it and keep Mm -hmm. saying I want I want I want it's just love it go into gratitude for it know that life can't say you know life cannot not hear that
0: yeah it's like and life might say, if if we anthropomorphize life, or, or if we want to think of God, it's like, all right, already, I heard you. you know, shut up and let me do it. <laughs> right, right. Get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's great. Any other stories you'd like to tell us?
1: Well, I'll tell another funny one about uh, Angel Al. I haven't oh, yeah. talked much much about him, but right. uh, again, in early sobriety, he was he, he saved my life early on uh, because in. Really, uh, my first year of sobriety, I still wasn't sure that I wasn't going to end my life. And um, so, you know, this angel came in and I was struggling with money and trying to get my footing back and, you know, I've got 27 years of, of feelings coming up. My, my life was a mess. All these things that I had numbed and, and repressed with drugs and alcohol uh, were now coming up to be felt um, big time. So my life was crisis. It was, you know, grabbing the fire extinguisher and just putting out one fire after another. I remember one day just standing in the grocery store struggling with all the things that I needed to buy and the little bit of money that I had in my hands to buy it with, you know, really angry at life and and shouting out internally to Angel Al, just like, you know, I'm not asking for a lot. Just a hundred grand would be nice. <laughs> and the moment I had that thought, the woman in front of me bumped into the candy rack uh-huh. and a hundred grand bar fell off. And I caught it. Oh, and that's I looked so at funny. it. I looked at it and I went, oh, that's funny, Al. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh,
0: hilarious.
1: He really does have a great sense of humor. And there were many, many things that made me laugh right out loud. Uh, it's, you know, through difficult times, too. So. Yeah. Um, and again, I was always taken care of. None of us ever went, you know, hungry. We might have had peanut butter and jelly as a staple for a while, but or hundred grand bars, or hundred <laughs> thousand dollar
0: bars. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's he, great. He gave me a winning number once in a dream, too.
0: Did you use it and it, it won?
1: I did. It, here's how limiting um, the mind can be. So, again, you know, with that frustration of. Life is against me and I'm a victim. And I was really entrenched in that for a long time. It's like, you know, $100, that's not a lot. That's all I need is $100 really to make the rent this month. And I had a dream and my daughter came through and, and she was, the number was 911. It was like an emergency. And then this number after it, and I had no idea what that number was. And it was like weird. The next morning I got up and Al, through one of his signals, said, remember the dream. And, uh, and I went, oh yeah, and I wrote the number down. And when I went to the store to pick up a couple items for the house, uh, they have this little lottery booth and I went through and I played the number and I won exactly $100. Oh,
0: that is pretty cool.
1: So it was just enough to make the rent, uh, you know, I could have asked for more I guess, but you know, in the dream that was what I was, you know, what I was given because that was what I asked
0: for. Yeah, and it's what you really needed.
1: It was what I really needed. If asked for
0: a million dollars, it probably would have been a little exorbitant.
1: I wasn't ready for that, yeah. you know, really, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have known what to do with it.
0: <laughs> would have gone out and bought drugs with it.
1: Right, I wasn't growing up enough to handle that much.
0: Interesting. Well, there's kind of an overarching uh, principle involved in, I mean, in all these stories, which is that, um, you know, we live in a conscious universe, you know, it's not, it's not mechanistic, it's, yeah. it's sentient in some deep way. I think you can't really compartmentalize or separate whatever we are from whatever it is in the larger sense. Although on the surface level you can, but more deeply, it's all one yeah. ocean of consciousness. You know, interacting with itself, and and all sorts of mirac- miracles are possible, aren't they? When when we kind of like learn to function on that kind of more unified level of of being, of yes. reality. Yeah. 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 Which is heartening, I think. Even if people aren't experiencing that, I think most people intuitively know that that's the way it is. And um, there's some kind of, when people hear hear words like this, they think, yeah, you know, I know that. Um, And it's just kind of a matter of living it more and more fully to really gain what we might call the practical significance of it or the practical advantage of it
1: right yeah there has to be a willingness of letting go There's got to be a willingness of letting go of the story that one is so so identified with mm-hmm. that you know if they're really attached to something and believing it there's there's got to be a willingness of letting go of that and seeing you know seeing it as something before them that they have no idea what his purpose is and again it's just it's opening the pressure valve and letting letting everything out of it creating more space for something new to come through. And I can remember Eckhart Tolle saying once um, that mud isn't, you know, like, if you get stuck in mud, you can put all of your focus on your feet that are stuck in mud, and call it bad. And what am I going to do? But, you know, mud isn't bad. It's just mud. And if you allow mud to be mud, you might be able to lift your head up and and look around and, and find a branch or somebody standing close by and ask for, you know, ask for some help. But there are other options, but as soon as we're identified with mud and stuck, that's where we are.
0: Well there's that bumper sticker, you know, let go and let God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. true.
1: Yes, it is what we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice note to end on, is that that's what we are.
1: Yeah.
0: I and mean, there's all these Vedic sayings, you know, Tat Tvamasi, that thou art. I have a song that just came through
1: me recently that I sing at one of my events. The title of it is, We Are God. And, mm-hmm. and it goes through all of these things. You are, they are, we are God. I am, you are, they are God. And it ends with, uh, he is, she is, we is God. Yeah. <laughs> and the first time I sang it, I saw one person perk his ears up and he went, wait a minute, that's bad English. And I went, okay, sing it again and see if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, oh yeah, we is God. So it is singular.
0: Nice. Do you accompany yourself on a guitar or something? Or are you singing a cappella? Ukulele. I, ukulele. Do I do sing a
1: cappella. I do sing a too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm playing a ukulele.
0: Feel like singing it, or do you want to just put it on YouTube and people can watch it? We'll later. put it on. <laughs> we'll put
1: it on YouTube and people can watch it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Great. Alrighty. Any closing thoughts?
1: I think that's uh, that. Sounds like a good place to end. Really, that we are it. There's nothing else but this and when we can open to that which we are, um, there's something new that comes through and it's mind blowing which is what's needed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> mind needs to be blown and once that's shattered we can, we can see really the uh, infinite, infinite source of life that we are. It's joyous and challenging and magical and muddy and really
0: wonderful. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Shelley.
1: Thank you, Ray. I yeah. really appreciate being on the call and uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing.
0: I love doing it. So let me make my usual little closing remarks. I've been speaking with Shelley Ray, and this is part of an ongoing series. You probably know that by now. Go to batgap.com, look at the, look at the past interviews menu, and you'll see all of them all organized in different ways. There's a place to sign up for an audio podcast, which we're having difficulty with uh, lately, but it's still working for some people, and we're going to get it totally fixed for everyone soon. There is a uh, place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's the donate button, which I mentioned earlier, and a bunch of other things. If you just play around with the menus a bit, you'll see some little interesting tidbits. So as you may be aware, these interviews are live-streamed these days, so if you want to watch live and send in a question while I'm doing it, you can do that. So, thanks for listening or watching. Uh, Next week I'll be speaking with someone who uh, I'm very excited about, a gentleman named Reverend Michael Dowd, who has made a YouTube series called God and Big History, which you might want to even watch before the interview and who, along with his wife Connie Barlow, has been traveling the United States pretty much full-time for ten years giving talks about sort of reality-based religion. In other words, religion dooms itself to irrelevance, and we as a society doom ourselves to a rather hellish future if we deny certain realities. Which, And there are all sorts of implications for climate change and all kinds of stuff, but we'll talk about that all next week. Uh, and he expresses it much more articulately than I do. So again, thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week.